0: most important. Every moment, I think we're all, from a business perspective, thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg: Business of Sports from
1: Bloomberg Radio. Well, I'm speaking with Arthur Blank, of course, chairman, owner of the Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United, co-founder of Home Depot. He's got a new book. It's called good company. Arthur, really excited to talk to you and I will sort of confess to our audience as I did to you before we started recording here. I'm from Atlanta. I'm a Falcons fan of late an Atlanta United fan as well. Longtime customer of Home Depot as well. So this is a real treat for me. Thanks for spending some time.
0: Well, thank you very much. We appreciate all that support as well. So writing a book,
1: it's not easy. Uh, What made you do it? What made you do it now?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you know, having lived through um, the uh, you know the uh, the birth of the Home Depot in the first twenty three years, and and when I uh, retired, left in two thousand one, it was the largest, the second largest retail company in the world, second only to Walmart. And uh, um, you know, when I got involved in these other businesses, Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta United, uh, we built this magnificent stadium. that's probably one of the finest sports facilities in the world today. We operate our PGA Tour Superstores, the number one golf retail specialty store probably in the country, if not the world. And we have these guest ranches in in, uh, in Montana, and of course, our foundation. Um, the reason I'm naming all those things is that you know, we apply these same core values, these six core values, to running all of these businesses. And, um, and the beauty of these values is not only they are, still are the foundation and, and, and the strength of the Home Depot, but... I've been able to translate all of those exactly as is into all of these very diverse sets of businesses and different geographies, fans, customers, guests, whatever the case may be, um, using the same principles. And they've been uh, tremendously successful in each of the industries, but not only successful in terms of who is serving, but uh, all of the other dimensions today that um, companies are looking at and associates are looking at and customers are looking at in terms of how do you measure success. So, um, you know, it's one of the reasons the Business Roundtable, which has been around for 50 years in 2019, redefined their version of success, not just in terms of profitability, but impact on associates, on communities and suppliers and, and, and stakeholders of a variety of kinds. So we've we've done that at HD. We did it since in 19, uh, 1979, but we're doing that today in all of our businesses. And this good company... Really talks about those relationships. How do you build all those links together, and how uh, how dependent they are on, on each other for the you know for the final form and the final success?
1: Well, that's uh, incredibly interesting, and I'm glad you went to where you did with the business roundtable because that certainly is, is at the core of this and this whole notion of of stakeholders i think is especially interesting and i think mm-hmm. you would agree when it comes to owning sports teams and and i do wonder what you've learned from owning a football team owning two football teams i yeah. guess uh technically speaking um right. that's different in terms of stakeholders because it is dynamic maybe in a different
0: way yes it is i think you know it was interesting um and we talk about this in the book uh, before I closed on the Atlanta Falcons, I was in New York and I, I was meeting with the commissioner and Paul Tagliabue and getting my new owner orientation. And he said, "You're going to be here tomorrow." We have one of our relatively new owners here, Robert Kraft, who owns the Patriots, as you as you know, and a very successful, you know, family and business. And I went you just have breakfast with him. And Robert said to me, "He said you're know, going to hear the NFL is really different. The only the sports team is really different." He said, "You know, my in my opinion, my humble opinion." He said, I would apply all the same principles, all the same values to the Atlanta Falcons and the NFL, as you did at the Home Depot. Uh, the only thing that's going to be different um, is the amount of media attention that you'll get. Uh, so, I, you know, I kind of winked at him and said, well, you know, we started out as nothing in 1979. We're now a new stock exchange company and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, we, you know, we have a big public following and, and deal with the press all the time. See, he he winked at me like, sometimes you'll do it, a child, they just will not understand what a parent will say to them. And they'll say, Well, like, you know, you'll get it someday. Right. And so it's kind of what Robin was saying to me someday you'll get it. So I think the media attention is very different. Um, I also think, you know, having been in the business now, both of those businesses you mentioned, soccer and football. Um, is that, you know, the risk of injury is, is much greater. So in business, obviously, you know, if, God forbid, you got hurt, you broke your leg doing something, uh, you would still come to work the next day and you'd still do the same, same podcast, same work that you're doing today. Um, you know, obviously, in sports, when you have that kind of injury or version of any injury, you really are affected. And it, if it's the wrong player, it can really affect the team. It's always, it's always the next man up but often the next man up is not the guy that was there first because he's not as good as the next man up. Right. So, um, or not as good as the first guy, I should say. So, you know, I think that's different. Other than that, really, um, it really is the same set of principles. And, um, and, you know, and the beauty is, and I, I've talked to Craig Moneer at HD about this, and Frank Blake, and you know who was the preceding CEO, and of course myself and Bernie, both feel very, strong, Bernie Marcus, my co-founder of HD, both feel very strongly about this. Is that, you know, these core values are all driven by behavior mm-hmm. and relationships to other people, other human beings, um, and it really says if you do the right things from a behavioral standpoint you will produce the financial results, which are important. They're not unimportant. They're very important because you want to have a sustainable organization that's giving the returns to that aspect of good company, your shareholders, stakeholders, uh, but along with the people that you're serving and your associates as well as the communities that they're operating in. So it's a uh, it's a beautiful circle, um, kind of a circle of life in certain ways. Uh, and it really um, it really brings out the very best of all of us, and brings out the sense of uh, of connecting to each other, and it really a greater sense of community and neighborhood, which I think is very very important today.
1: Well, and I want to talk about neighborhoods in the city of Atlanta, but mm-hmm. but I want to start if I can on and key off of something that that you just said uh, around sort of media attention, and and implicit right. in that is sort of managing people and. Toward the end of the book, you, you talk about, uh, in, in a way that I've never seen before, your relationship and, and the situation with Michael Vick. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I do wonder, as you reflected on that and you thought about it and you lay out in, in, in pretty good detail um, kind yeah. of your thoughts and feelings about that, talk to me about sort of putting that to paper and, and what you take away from that experience with Michael Vick.
0: Well, I think there are several things. I mean, number one, I mean, what you know, the behavior that that Michael and 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 uh, his friends and family, to some extent, were involved in is is just, I mean, you know, it was just abhorrent. And so it's it's no, there's no, there's no rationale, there's no excuse, there's nothing you could say to ever to, to ever justify it. However, you do try to understand it. You know, how would you know, why Why is this prevalent not only with Michael, but, you know, why is it prevalent in other areas and this kind of thing? And you really come to realize uh, in, a, in, a, in a different way, it's not unique, but the different way is that, you know, when people are brought up in a certain environment, um, that when they have certain life experiences and uh, they're not corrected at early ages and, and their perspective is not brought to a, a, a sounder place I mean, when they're younger, that they will continue to make mistakes uh, along those same lines. So, in the case of Michael, you know, where he grew up in, in, in Newport News, Virginia, at that time, I mean, police would drive by, you know, dog fighting and things of that nature. Not because they didn't care about it, but they had issues of domestic violence, they had homicides, they had all kinds of other things that that, mo- that most people would say would even, you know, be things that even need uh, even need greater attention or, or more or more media attention. So. He grew up in that environment, and uh, and I think he was, you know, he was taken advantage of, I think, by, uh, by uh, you know, some uh, young, you know, some young friends of his uh, over a long period of time, which is not unusual when somebody reaches the level of celebrity that he had. Um, but in looking back, I mean, Michael realizes fully, not even because of the year and a half he spent in prison, but because I think he looks back and realizes that that was a horrible mistake, mistakes over a period of time, he takes full responsibility for it. Uh, I think, you know, you, you know, you scratch the skin of almost any human being, you're going to find something. And I think he realizes that that was, uh, you know, that was a choice that he made choices. He made at that time in his life that were extremely poor. And uh, he's working hard and has worked hard since he's been released from prison to try to uh, speak to young people primarily, but adults too, but primarily to young people about the impact of making better choices. And, uh, And I think it's important, uh, particularly for young people, when they hear from somebody who has some stature, some recognition, somebody that they can relate to, like Michael in this case, um, you know, here's a guy saying, look, I I made bad choices. And let me tell you, this is the impact of it, how it affected my life financially, how it affected me in terms of a year and a half in prison, affected my family, affected my friends, affected my career. Uh, And so it's not just about dogfighting, it's about making better choices, and um, you know, unfortunately, today our young people—you know—we all need to be reminded of that, but right. particularly our young people today. Uh, and from a peer, if you will, some version of a peer, I think it becomes very powerful. So I'm, I'm proud of the work that Michael has done since then. Um, uh, I, you know, I I I think he's uh, he's a different person than he was before, um, and uh, I certainly wish wish him luck in that regard, and will continue to support him in that regard, right. and. Uh, and to continue to make a difference in lives of other people that he's speaking to now.
1: And that support obviously comes through in the way you write about him and your relationship with him in more recent years and mm-hmm. your willingness to, to provide him a public stage. It does make me wonder too, about the responsibility you feel, not just as an owner of a couple of very prominent teams, but as an owner of a couple of prominent teams in the city of Atlanta and in the city of Atlanta in the year 2020, when this country, I don't have to tell you, is Mm -hmm. roiled by issues and confronting racial injustice and systemic racism in a way that we never have before. Tell me how, especially maybe as you've been writing this book and, and going about your daily work, how you're thinking about your role in that, because it does feel to me, and I say this as a, as an Atlantan, a former Atlantan, uh, it it feels like it, it, there could be even more expectation, and and dare I say, even pressure, given where you are, and and where you come from.
0: Well, you know, Jason, I I would, I would say this, and you know, it's interesting, our um, president of our foundation is, is, uh, is, is transitioning now, she's, been the head of the foundation for almost 17 years has done incredible work but you know she's ready to you know to move on to a retirement phase in her life or a semi-retirement phase in her life but in any event we're talking to a number of very qualified people and i had a conversation with one the other day who's you know well known nationally and um and i was trying to talk about the families the mental framework and positioning and i said you know one of the things you consider this kind of opportunity is that this is a family that, um, that goes where the heat is the hottest. Um, this is a family that, uh, will seek out the the largest platform to make the biggest difference on social issues, on other issues that we can, um, not jumping to the forefront necessarily for, you know, just recognition, but we want to be in the middle. We want to be as close to the fire as we can be in terms of dealing with these issues. And, uh, um, I want to do it thoughtfully. I want to do it based on research. I want to do it, you know, based on respect for everybody else who's in the same circle as we are. But um, so I think that in every every sense, um, uh, I feel strongly that way. I think that's how our, our businesses operate, our foundation operates. And really it goes back to, you know, my parents in many ways who uh, – Really, um, you know, that's how they were. Even though they had didn't have a lot financially, uh, they always were felt things that are matter of principle, things are matter of fairness, social fairness and social justice. Those things needed to be paid attention to, and that, you know, you, um, you you worried less about who was in the room, but more about you know speaking out of your heart, speaking out of your mind, speaking out of your spirit, and and being uh, and being truthful with everybody. So, you know, we've always been that way. Um, and I think on these issues today, in terms of social justice and police accountability and, and um, you know, all of the other issues that our country is struggling with right now, um, you know, whether through our foundation or through our businesses, mm-hmm. uh, we want to be clear as to where we stand. Um, so uh, I think that's important for all of, our, all of our stakeholders. It's important for the people we serve, fans, guests, customers. It's important for our associates, who uh, are the connection point between our vision for these businesses and the actual the living of them, the articulation of them. Yeah, um, and uh, and all of our suppliers, just all of our stakeholders. So. Right.
1: Well, it, it's interesting to, to hear you say that, and I do wonder how you you're thinking has evolved especially of late as an NFL owner specifically and you write in the book uh, about you know being supportive of Colin Kaepernick and of players kneeling you know when that yeah. became a thing a, a, a few years ago and when it really came to the fore by virtue uh, of Colin Kaepernick initially and then obviously we're at a in hopefully a, a different and and more progressive moment now how do you feel that you as a team are doing and maybe more importantly how the NFL is doing maybe in meeting this moment which feels different and it feels like the the tone is shifted is that fair to say you think for the NFL yeah
0: I, I would say that for sure and I think if you start out with a you know with the commissioner and uh, his you know his his recognition of the difference between 2016 when um, when Collins started to kneel into 17 and you know, he had hundreds and hundreds of players responding to uh, the President Trump's, you know, um, comments about, you know, about the nature of the players. I don't, I don't want to say the say the words on the air, but you know, I
1: will say you have a, a a very powerful anecdote about one of your players in the book about that, and I won't spoil it, but um, it, okay. it's a it's very powerful uh, in terms but, but of responding you know, to the president. I, I think
0: I think that you know the commissioner speaks for the NFL, speaks for the owners. I think and. Um when he you know now recognizes the uh the importance of what Colin had to say uh probably didn't get the amount of support and the amount of respect that it should have um I think that uh you know certainly I think the NFL feels strongly I think owners feel strongly by and large i mean I would say way much larger than maybe a few minority owners uh that you know. People should be protesting. I mean that's their that's the American way. Um, uh, you know, one of my good friends passed away just recently, John Lewis, and you mm-hmm. know, John's his slogan and the movie which is just out now in his life is called Good Trouble. Right. I mean, I think that um that's kind of you know, I think there's places, there's times and places for quote good good trouble. Now good trouble does not include leading the looting rather. Right. does not include, you know, vandalism of any kind, does not include, you know, causing harm to other people, but it does include you know making sure that voices are heard and uh, in the form of whatever that may be, some sort of protest that's nonviolent that expresses you know views of a group or a person or an organization. I think that's fine. I think I, I mean that's what America has always done you know since, since our birth, and that's a healthy thing. What's not healthy is that when, it, when it gets when it gets violent and when it turns into uh, looting and other things of that nature, because that's not what protest is about.: All right.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about soccer because I, I do feel like this has been a business that really, for, to use a, a not uh, not technical business term, really took off and took off in Atlanta in a way that maybe some people, maybe you, anticipated it. It would uh, talk about that that early success because. I do wonder, and I'm sure other people have asked you this, other owners across leagues, what the sort of magic was that
0: seemed to happen with Atlanta United and has happened. Well, I think the magic was, that, again, it goes back to some of these key core values we talk about in the book. We uh, we have a tremendous amount of respect for the sport, enough to where we hired um, we hired the highest paid CEO in, in Major League Soccer. At the time we hired him, I didn't know that, but I knew he was going to be well paid, but He was somebody that was was incredibly talented. We hired him three years before we had the first, you know, the first ball on the pitch. So we gave him a chance to, you know, study the market, understand Georgia, understand Atlanta, understand the soccer clubs there, um, you know, understand totally MLS. He had played in Europe and played in the United States as well and was very familiar with MLS, et cetera. But, you know, to give him a chance to really, you know, to build a staff, Quality staff behind himself, uh, work along with himself, etc., and develop the relationships at a club level primarily, and you know, with the soccer community in a general sense, the parents, the uh, supporter clubs, etc., that were here. Uh, and because you know, soccer, probably of most sports, more most of the most sports, uh, the fans definitely feel that sense of ownership, mm-hmm. uh, and they they true, truly do so. He and others spent a lot of time in developing ideas about, you know, the profile of the team, the uniform of the team, uh, slogans, um, you know, what the TIFOs would look like. All all of that came from our supporter group. So they really felt, the fans really felt that, you know, um, the interest was there in soccer. It's a tremendous – Atlanta has always been a big soccer community. There's always been a lot of youth soccer played in this town. So the, the, the harvest was there. The opportunity was there. Um, and it's always been a very diverse community and growing more and more in terms of diversity, being a very international city with the airport being where it is. So, um, you know, I, I would say that, uh, you know, there were, the formula, I think, was right. I think we tapped into the, to our customer base, our fan base in this case. We get to listen and respond. We talk about that at length in the book, uh, how important that is, and that we have humility we understand the people that you know are going to be in the stadium. They really know know best, if you will. We want to create that sense that they're not just part of the process, but they kind of own the process. We understand we've got responsibilities. It's not a free fall, but but we do want to make sure that the fans feel like we're always acting in their best interest as well. Yeah, and I think we've we've really done that. We paid attention to the unique customs and uh, unique requirements of soccer. So soccer fans don't ever want to feel there are other owners uh, in the MLS who also operate NFL teams. They don't ever want to feel like their team is secondary to an NFL team, even though in terms of revenue and profitability it may be, they don't want to feel that way. So we designed a stadium which cost us millions and millions and millions of dollars in additional funding. uh, So it became very soccer-specific, met all the FIFA standards, we could we could host the FIFA games, the World Cup, which we would probably do in 2026, um, and, uh, and and fans appreciate that. And when they walk into the stadium on a soccer day, they feel like this is their place, uh, and all of their customs and traditions are being honored as well. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, and, I do have to ask that you... we're averaging, you know, as you as you know, and maybe listeners make some may know, some may not. We're averaging 54,000. <laughs> You know, fans per game, of attendance. We we'll have up to seventy thousand. It's, uh, it's 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 fifty percent higher than the next closest club in the league, and twice what the average is in the league. And we've, MLS has been around for twenty-five years. We now hold every single attendance record of any of any mix or context uh, that's been in existence for the last twenty-five years. It's a credit to our organization. It's a bigger credit to our fan base. Yeah. And uh we're very appreciative. And it makes a huge difference to the players. And the players are on the pitch. Uh, you know, they see and feel that energy and they respond to it like we all would in that kind of athletic situation.
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned and, and before I let you go or before you have to get on to your next thing, I, I did want to ask you because you mentioned it in the context of the of the soccer team uh specifically the demographics of Atlanta are, are fascinating, I think, and and for many of us who have lived there and who appreciate the city, you know, I and others have often said, if you really want to understand America in many ways, look to Atlanta in terms of the growth and the demographics and, you know, all the opportunity and and challenge candidly. You know, one of the things that you have had to do with that stadium is be incredibly sensitive and and. And conduct some negotiations around the neighborhood and and mm-hmm. understand the the population of Atlanta maybe in a more meaningful and, and complex way than than most would. Talk to me a little bit if you can about navigating that and and what you learned from that because you write about it in the book.
0: Yeah, um, well, an example would be you know there were two very old churches that were um, within the then um, walking distance of where. The uh, where one of the sites were, we had several sites uh, in downtown Atlanta that were connected to the Georgia World Congress Center, which is the second, the third largest Congress Center, I think, in the United States today. Um, And one was on the north and one was on the south. And our our preference was the one on the south because we were closest to public transportation, about 35% of our. Of our, of our guests for whether it be soccer games, football games, concerts, whatever it may be, they come by public transportation, which is, you know, you know, which is great in terms of planet Earth and, and trying to do the right thing from that standpoint. Um, so when we talked to the churches, they they originally said, well, you know, we, we these churches have been here a long time, and frankly, we've lost a lot of our congregants. Um, we can't afford to stay here. We'd like to, you know, consider building a new church someplace close by, that we can not only keep the congregants we have, but attract you know some new some new congregants, et cetera. So, you know, we said we'd be we'd be happy happy to be part of that process, and as long as it's considered to be a win for you know for the church as well. And um, and we had one church that was that were, they were they were more than happy to do that. We paid them you know actually above market. We told them we would. Um, we just don't want to be taken advantage of, but we knew it was going the money was going to a good place. We had a second church who, um you know halfway through negotiations, said, "Well, we're not sure we want to leave And, you know it's an old congregation et cetera et cetera and, and I said to them said to the you know pastor at the church, I said, you should stay there i said we'll be you know, we'll be happy, we'll go to the north side and um, i said, there's no there's no pressure i mean i really i don't want to, i, I don't want to be part of any process mm. where we're we're asking, forcing, coercing, talking into a church making the move, et cetera. So, if you feel you're better suited staying where you are in, in the older facilities that you have, that's perfectly fine with me. I honor that, I understand it, and I'll support that. Um, you know, after that con- after that conversation, they went back to their congregation and they also decided to sell their church. So, you know, those were handled, I think, in a sensitive way. But again, they go back, and we talk about this in the book. It goes, it's not a complicated decision tree. It's one that you you do the right things for the right reasons and you live with the consequences of that. In this case, the right things for the right reasons was telling them, listen, we have an option here. We can uh, we can give you an opportunity to capitalize on the value of your real estate. Uh, if you're interested in that, great. If you're not, and we'll pay you top price for it. And if you're not, it's fine, too. We're going to be neighbors. We're going to be friends. We're going to be community. We're going to do all those things together. So... Um, And that's turned out to be the case. I think the churches are very happy that they've moved on, and obviously we're very happy with the stadium location. So
1: given that uh, we're taping this on August 26th and everything Mm -hmm. changes hour-to-hour, day-to-day, give (laughs) me your top-line prediction at this moment for the NFL season in terms of are we going to play, where are we going to play, how's it all going to go? Yeah.
0: Well, Jason, if I had if I had a bet now, I would say we will have a full season. Um I obviously I think with with a couple of exceptions only out of 32 claim teams, uh almost all franchises are not going to have fans in either for the first game or the first month. Um, and I think in my opinion that's a wise decision until the uh until the COVID uh Surges and crises and ups and downs, mostly ups, sadly, um, in a lot of our communities uh, are stabilized. They're heading the right direction. I think the decision about whether we have fans or not has really nothing to do, per se, with the NFL. It should have to do totally with science and the medical profession and what we're hearing from them. Uh, and that's what our guiding post should be. And uh, obviously doing right by the community. So, uh, just like in Montana, we operate we operated two two guest ranches, and one of which has been open to the public for over 100 years, and we closed it this year. I mean, not because we couldn't protect our guests and we couldn't protect our associates, but we couldn't protect the communities that, that, that we'd be hiring people from, and we couldn't protect uh, those communities from guests that would be coming in nationally and internationally to visit us, as we do every year. So, you know, it it's, seems like it's a hard decision, but when you think about... Communities are important too in this in this uh in this circle of life if you will then uh, you make the you you make those decisions as well so I think we'll have a full season i think uh hopefully as the fall goes on and things get better you know God willing and us you know human beings participating by wearing masks and following the social distancing requirements et cetera that the numbers will 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 continue to start going down. And it will be able to have fans in our building. But it's going to be an odd year. I mean, okay. it's going to be an odd year as it's been, obviously. And as you said earlier, it changes from day to day. I mean, right. it, literally, as our listeners know, it changes from day to day. And, uh, and we hope the changes now will be more on the positive side than on the negative side.
1: Here's hoping. Well, really good to spend some time with you. Appreciate it. Congratulations on the book. Arthur Blank, chairman and owner of the Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta United, co-founder, of course, of Home Depot. The book, it's called Good Company. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.